What can I say about Seth Godin that hasn't already been said? Seth literally created and defined the term work that matters. And that's become a North Star for me in my work. He's also helped me see purple cows, lead a tribe, become a linchpin, crossover dips, poke more boxes, not fly too close to the sun, and focus on practicing, to name a few. I'm proud to call him a mentor and friend. In this informal chat, we talk about his book on leadership, The Song of Significance, a new manifesto for teams. In the write-up, it says, It's a rousing contemplation on work, why it is the way it is, why it's gotten so bad, and what all of us, especially leaders, can do to make it better. Economic instability and the rise of remote work have left us disconnected and disengaged. Alarm managers are responding with harsh top-down edicts, laid-offs, mandatory, back-to-work rules, surveillance, and, and other stuff. Workers are responding by quiet quitting and working their wage. But it doesn't have to be this way. In Seth's regular fashion, he's pointing out stuff that doesn't work well and offering solutions how to fix it. Here we go. This episode is also brought to you by my friends at Plunge. Some of you know that when I met Wim Hof, the Iceman, he was instrumental in helping me cure my chronic migraines with cold therapy. I first discovered cold plunging on my journey to better health about three years ago. I was getting pretty serious migraine headaches from a combination of poor sleep habits, inflammatory foods, work-related stress, and dehydration. I had no idea what was going on. I was miserable, couldn't function at work or home, and none of my doctors could figure out how to solve my problem without addictive pain meds. I started slowly with cold showers and immediately felt the benefits. I knew I needed to take it to the next level and started cold plunging. I focused on optimizing my sleep, fitness, nutrition, and it all started coming together. I have probably saved over $20,000 in medical bills staying healthy and fit on this protocol. How much would you invest to feel amazing? For me, the investment in a cold plunge to feel like me again was priceless. I've lost weight, I'm more mentally awake and don't need coffee or Red Bulls, and I'm doing my best to live a longer, healthier life to be with my family. That's what I want. Cold and heat therapy is an integral part of my regular training protocols now. My friends at Plunge just released the all-new, all-in unit, which is totally redesigned and full of upgrades. Use my code BRY, that's B-R-Y, to get a better price when you buy it. Just go to plunge.com and check out the all-new, all-in, as well as their beautiful hot sauna units available now for pre-order. It's been one of the best investments I've made in my health. I guarantee it. This episode is brought to you by WeWork. Don't just work from anywhere. Your working week deserves a little luxury, like beautiful spaces to spark ideas in person, designed carefully for collaboration and peaceful nooks with uh, focus mode and awesome Wi-Fi. I love WeWork because I'm surrounded by like-minded people. It's a great place to hang out, network, or make good friends. They're even dog-friendly. Whether you're a solo entrepreneur or you bring your entire team, yes, your entire team, check out WeWork because now you can unlock productive, flexible workspaces in over 180 locations near you, especially if you use the WeWork All Access Basic. Get 30% off your first five months by using code BRIANAA30, that's B-R-Y-A-N-A-A-3-0, 
Or to redeem the offer, just go to we.co forward slash behind the brand. All right, here we go. Hey, it's Seth, and I'm thrilled to be sitting here talking with my buddy, Brian. Everyone, welcome back. Seth, always great to see you. Thank you for having me again. It's been a long, beautiful journey. Yeah, it's been maybe since like 2018 since I was here in this office. Yeah, back before the Dark Ages. Before the Dark Ages. Yeah, but we started, if my recollection is right, with Lynchpin. And so it's sort of full circle. It's been a long time since I've written and talked about the ideas that are in Lynchpin. So Yeah, actually, we started with tribes. Okay. We started with tribes. I I remember it well. Uh, It was about 2008. And I had started this little tribe in Southern California, mm-hmm. and you were doing, you know, this whole thing uh, around the book that I had no idea. Then I bought the book, read it, and I was so inspired that I reached out and I said, "I'm so inspired. I have a little <laughs> tribe. We have a few thousand people who, you know, are moving in a certain direction in Southern California." I remember. Yeah, uh, that book really, really. I mean, that's the book that kicked it off for me. Uh, and my takeaway from tribes is not only do we all belong to a tribe, whether we know it or not, but the opportunity is to lead one. And when you lead one, then great things can happen. Well, I think great, thing happens, great things happen because you showed up to do it. There are lots of people will read an idea like that and shake their head. Some people will misunderstand it and think they have to go get a tribe. But I think what you understood was there's a group of people there that are just waiting to be connected. And there's a grace to it, to just get out of the way and say, this is where we're going, who wants to come? As opposed to insisting in a sort of uh, selfish way that people have to find you. Yeah, that's the difficult thing, right? And I still struggle with that now and helping clients with that, which is identifying where the problem is, the pain point, or like what people are clamoring for. Mm Mm-hmm. Because still, here we are like a decade plus later after the fact, and I still catch myself and the people I work with creating something, thinking it's this amazing idea, even spending money on a, a die or a prototype. Sure. It's expensive and risky. Yeah. And they don't even know if there's demand for it yet. And they put it out in the market and they wonder why. Right. And they think they have to hustle. Like I regularly hear from people, can you teach me how to do marketing? I'm like, well, do you want to learn how to do marketing or do you want to learn how to hustle and steal people's attention? Because if that's what you want, I can't help you. Yeah. I mean, that formula is not difficult, right? You just either say something that no one agrees with, <laughs> so outlandish, right? I mean, if I'm being honest, I still struggle with that idea, which is probably all baked into the practice, which is this, you know, don't worry about the outcome focus on the process. That's it's still so difficult. Well, okay. So but let me just, so we're talking about the book, The Practice. Worry is an interesting word. You shouldn't worry about anything, right? But what I say is very clearly, don't become attached to the outcome. Right. Attached is a key phrase. So if you and I want to swim across the Hudson River, which is right there, um, if it was warm out, we could do it in one of two ways. We could get an eight-foot length of rope. I could attach it to one hand. You could attach it to one hand. And by being attached to each other, we could swim a little bit and we would not make it. Or we could say to each other, let's pay attention to where we each are and try to stay within eight feet of each other, and we would be fine. Attachment means that the outcome 
is driving decisions in a way that isn't beneficial to the work you seek to do. Right. And so the hard work of creativity is not to ignore the audience. You can't. You have to be aware of it. You have to do the work and merely accept that after you've done the best version of the work, what happens is what's going to happen. Because if you're spending your psychic energy willing other people to do a thing you want them to do, that's energy you're not putting into the thing itself. Right. Or hoping, you know, on the upload that the video goes viral or... Yeah. Yeah. Actually, that advice came in good handy. So we were talking off camera about my son who, who runs... And even when people aren't chasing him, just to be clear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's running like, I think the 400 is what he was worried about, you know. And, uh, and I said, don't worry about coming in first, second, third place. Don't worry about even your PR, even though that's important, all of those things. But just like, if you just focus on your form, mm-hmm. the process of running your guts out, you're going to place high and you're going to do well. Yeah. Yeah, no, human beings are tricky. Roger Bannister broke the four-minute by having people in shifts run next to him. They couldn't keep up, but it was a relay for them and one race for him. But having someone pacing you changes things. We can't help ourselves. Let's pivot a little bit and talk about the new, the new idea. It's management versus leadership, or this idea you've been talking about it for a long time. Managers manage, leaders lead. Um, what's the inspiration for the new? Well, it, the book is new. The idea is really old. The idea is hundreds, thousands of years old. Uh, I did a survey on my blog uh, in 2022, and I said, what's the best job you ever had? Here's 15 choices as to what made it the best job. And they ranged from, I got paid a lot. I didn't have to work very hard. I got to travel a lot. Uh, I got respect. I got to exceed my own personal expectations. And the key takeaway for me is that almost everybody had the same answers. More than uh, 10,000 people in 90 countries answered. And far and away, the most common beloved things about jobs that matter is it was significant. I felt significant. I exceeded my own story of what I was capable of. And I got paid a lot came in like almost last. So is significant kind of, I'm thinking of like the Maslow hierarchy. So like at the top of that is fulfillment. Is that what we're talking about? Industrialism has been around for 120 years, ever since we started pumping cheap oil out of the ground and building machines. And industrialism made us all rich. The percentage of people who are truly poor on earth is the smallest percentage it's ever been. There's still way too many people who are truly poor. But industrialism paved our roads, gave us indoor plumbing, and everything else. But industrialism requires management. It requires treating people like a machine. Because once you've got return on uh, real estate, return on machines, and return on equity, the next frontier is return on people. Use a stopwatch. The term jerk came into our vocabulary because someone visited Henry Ford's plant and said, there, it looks like there's a machine jerking these people around. And there was. And so we invented human resources. But my theory is that humans aren't a resource. Humans are the point. And what we really want in a job is not to be told precisely what to do every moment. That there are law firms now that are 
counting how many keystrokes each lawyer uses per minute, right? That we're running out of places where you're not being industrialized. And human beings are saying, enough of this. And at the very same time, we've got artificial intelligence and outsourcing and everything else. So if you do a job where it's specific what you do, you've got a manager who's trying to take the humanity out of it. And so what I'm saying is that human work, the way we spend our days, is a chance to do something significant. And significant means you make a change happen. So it's impact. Impact of any kind. Make a change happen. Yeah. It could be internal on ourselves. Like, right. Yeah. Uh, now I got you. And it's risky to make a change happen. Risky in the stock market sense and risky in a personal responsibility sense. And so my book is a manifesto that argues we should get real or let's not play. Let's talk to our coworkers. Let's talk to our boss. Let's talk to our employees and say, here's some basic principles that we're going to be engaging with each other around or else don't work here because there are plenty of places you can go where you can just work your shift and go home. And uh, I volunteered for a year as the founding editor of the Carbon Almanac, which is a book I'm super proud of. Uh, 300 of us wrote it together, all volunteers. And we finished a 97,000 word footnoted, illustrated book in five months with no significant errors, all volunteers. How? By making these commitments to each other. So it's possible. And if there's an organization that you care about, it's probable that they're doing significant work. Was, was there like a tipping point or, you know, what, what was the spark that lit this flame? Was there a certain experience? Was there a company, a case study? There were two things that came together that led me to, to do this. The first one is I met a beekeeper and he told me the story of the Song of Increase, which was named by a beekeeper named Jacqueline Freeman. And the Song of Increase describes what happens to a hive in North America around May or June. And what happens is this. Many hives don't survive the winter. The purpose of honey is to give the bees the sustenance. They make it through the winter, but they don't. If they do make it through the winter, the Council of Maidens, which is the group that runs the whole hive, has a meeting. And none of this is a metaphor. This actually happens. They have a meeting and they decide the hive is ready. And they do a couple things. The first thing is they instruct all the other maidens to go out and collect as much pollen as they possibly can. So there'll be a frenzy through June, which happens to line up with when the flowers need it, a frenzy of pollen collection, which will quickly turn into honey. And they will build a vertical egg chamber and instruct the queen to lay and fertilize a queen egg. Queens can lay 800 or 1,000 eggs a day. Bees only live four to six weeks, except for queen bees, which leave a few years. And but the queen doesn't lay queen eggs because there's only room for one queen in the hive. So the queen lays the queen egg and the maidens lavish it with royal jelly and food and care. And in a week or two, it's ready to become a queen. Then they will send a signal based on the weather. And in 15 minutes, more than 10,000 bees will leave the hive at the same time, including the, hive, including the queen. And they will leave behind all the honey they will leave behind all the pips, the baby bees. They will leave behind the new queen and they'll just leave. They will leap. And this sound, the song of increase, is something to behold. It's magical to hear. And where do they go? They uh, will go to the nearest tree and form a tight ball. 
And that's what I call the song of safety. Because bees have to maintain an, a body temperature of 98.6 degrees as a colony. Hmm. And they will vibrate to make sure it's just the right temperature. So same as humans. Same as humans. Basically, a, a bee colony is an inside-out human brain. And each bee is a neuron. The bee doesn't care if it dies, if it supports the colony. And if it pours rain or something bad happens, the entire hive will perish. And they only have three days to go find a new place to live. A hollow tree, the attic of a house, whatever it is. And we could talk all about the scouts and everything else. But the, the, the punchline for me was when you hear about the brave work of the Song of Increase, the daring to leave behind this thing. You made it through the winter. Everything's okay. No, we're going to leap. That led me to this idea of the Song of Significance. And at the same time, I was reading about the shenanigans of uh, the person who acquired Twitter. His, his brutality, his ultimatums, the cavalier way he was firing people, the code inspections, the sleeping in the office, stripping significance away from anyone he possibly could, the brutality of it. And, you know, it's easy for people like us to not pay attention when that happens in a coal plant, not pay attention when it happens in a steel mill. But now it was happening to people, quote, like us, unquote. And it becomes more real. Can't help it. We're humans. And we look at this and we say, when the machines come for us, and they always do, right? When the, the, if you were a ditch digger and the steam shovel came, well, that's good news because you didn't have to work so hard digging ditches. But it's bad news if all you know how to do is dig a ditch. You really need to use the steam shovel to create more possibility. So the machines are coming. And what occurred to me is, the classic books on management were about obedience. And this is a manifesto about teams and possibility. I have two just uh, natural thoughts after what you just said, which is, it seems like that kind of uh, reaction that you witness, that we've all witnessed, um, it's not just happening at Twitter or wherever else it's happening, but it's happening all over the place. Um, it almost seems like I would label that old school, mm -hmm. right? Like uh, Buffalo, New York on the hockey rink, check right. you into the, the yeah. boards old school, uh, you know, break it's, your nose. It's scarcity-based. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. mean, industrialism, the word economy comes from the word for Scarcity. You have the classic understanding of economics is there isn't enough. How are we going to allocate? But if you dance on the edge of infinity, there's always enough because you're making new stuff. If you think about the fact that there are more than 6 billion people on earth who have a job, where do all the jobs come from? Right? We didn't have that many jobs 20 years ago. Where'd they come from? Well, we invent jobs by inventing possibility, not by figuring out how to have less. And so what teams do, what change does, is it says, where is the frontier? How do I create value? That when markets work, they work by solving a problem. And before we roll tape, you and I were talking about how you're helping people who are trying to get to a market and let them know that there's a problem that's been solved. Well, 
once we solve the easy problems, which are really hard, like how do you make steel or how do you get a computer to talk English, well, then that opens the door to being able to solve problems we haven't even thought of yet. But you don't do that by being an industrialist and thinking like, how do I make this smaller and more profit per employee today? Yeah. You do it by saying, how do I make a deal with the people around me to create something out of nothing? Yeah, I guess the question I want to ask and unpack a little bit more is when things start to go sideways or there's a panic moment and we feel like, all right, I got to burn it to the ground and then rebuild it, like probably what's happening at Twitter. There's this tendency to go back to the drawing board, go back to basics, back to old school. I think about, you know, uh, the Rocky movies. Remember, the, have you seen any of the Rocky movies? And, you know, so he wins and then and then he gets prideful and then he loses everything. And what's he got to do? He's got to go back to the basics. So he's like, I think it's Rocky Four. He's got to go back and he's carrying logs and he's chopping wood instead of a high-tech gym, right? It seems like what we're, you're observing, what we're observing is kind of like back to old school mentality, back to basics. So how do we reconcile the usefulness of the good old days when things, you know, good old hard work or sleeping on the floor or, you know, whipping people, <laughs> you know, to get them to, to go faster. I mean, that used to be a thing, right? And there, there's some, whether it's nostalgia or, uh, I don't know, maybe it's just me. I just think, you know, um, they're called the best generation, right? Like the gener generation of my dad uh, and his dad, actually. And, you know, they're known for hard work and grit and all these things. But like, it's really hard to argue with back to basics, except when basics are misunderstood. The greatest generation worked far fewer hours than people in any profession today. They took more vacation. They had more stable lives. They watched less television. So if you want to go back to that, that's fine. But let's not call that the, you know, mindset of how do I extract one more drop of blood out of people? That the real opportunity here is to go back to actual basics, which is where do we find human beings who care, who will bring humanity to the table to solve an interesting problem in a new way? Because that is how we built so much of what we care about, not by price reducing things so that you can get something cheaper than you used to be able to get it. Industrial entities are an actual thing. And uh, there's a book called, there's an article called The Theory of the Firm. What the article argues is why do firms even exist? Why isn't every single person an independent entity? Well, it turns out that when you have the old fashioned assembly line, there used to be one steam engine that turned one pole and every worker would throw a leather strap over that pole. And when they needed a tool to work, the pole would turn the leather strap. So you needed to be on the line. That's why it's a line to make your tool work. There's a reason that firm needed to exist. Being all in one building has a benefit. But we've atomized all of those things, right? That you don't have a lot of people working for you. I have zero people working for me, but we're able to have lots of impact because YouTube doesn't work for you, but you have a video distribution team waiting at your beck and call for free anytime you want, right? So the theory of the firm is changing. And value is not being created by people who are faster and more obedient. Value is being created by people who work with folks they trust to build something new that is significant. And that doesn't involve carrying logs, which makes a good movie. It involves 
the hard work of developing a practice and the trust to be able to speak respectful truth to the people you work with. Most organizations are filled with people who are lying to each other. They, have, they call a Zoom meeting for 15 people because the boss says, we need to have a Zoom meeting. No, they're lying. What they really are doing is taking attendance. It bothers them that 14 people aren't in the room. Maybe they're out doing their grocery shopping. So if I make them sit for an hour on a Zoom call, at least I'm sure I have power and they are present. Yeah, it's about control. Right. That's not truthful. If you want to say, I'm taking attendance, announce you're taking attendance. What happens in a significant organization is the boss says, I have something to say. I managed to boil it down to a one-page memo. Here you go. I'd love your asynchronous thoughts because I trust you as a coworker. Or we actually have to have a conversation. I'm not going to talk the whole time because your time is valuable. So is mine. Let's have a conversation. That's truthful. So the commitments that I'm talking about are we criticize the work relentlessly. We never criticize the worker. That we are showing up to open the door for people to use their human skills, not requiring people to do work that I could easily outsource to a machine, et cetera, et cetera. So when we can start talking clearly with each other, I believe the same way we can build a car on purpose or a laser printer on purpose, we can build an organization on purpose that creates value and allows people to do significant work. And I have one more aside while you're thinking. Yeah. So I don't tell many, many stories about when I worked at Yahoo. When I worked at Yahoo, it was the internet. Yahoo had won. They were everything. And Give us some context. What year is this? this is, uh, they bought my company in 1998. I worked there in 1999. There were people on the street, and if you said, what's the internet? They would say Yahoo. That the number one thing that people searched for on Yahoo was Yahoo. Because it was the only way they knew to get back to the homepage. We're talking minting money. It was everything. Yeah. And um, so I said to the CEO, look, here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to cut my salary by 90%. I want to rent at my expense for $400 a month a room across the, the street. I want to take two people with me. And I'm going to bring you a business plan every three months. So instead of acquiring companies for $2 billion at a time, you'll get them for free. And I'll just have this lab. And Jerry turned to me and he said, well, that sounds good, except then everyone would want to do that. And so back to the cube farm, I went. And it was, there was a purple chair in the front lobby and everything else was a cube. And it took less than five years for Yahoo to go from everything to nothing. Because if the internet hadn't changed, Yahoo would still be in charge. But there's always entities that are trying to change the rules and change the system. So the thing that you're industrializing for, whatever it is you do, whether you make hospital cribs or internet sites, is going to be disrupted by someone who's doing something else. And so the amount of time you have, you know, Jack Welch, you know, looted his firm for 20 years before it caught up with GE. Now you get three years maybe less. So if you're a shareholder, if you're on the board of directors, if you're a CEO, this argument applies to you too, which is you can't industrialize your way forward. You can't shriek yourself to greatness. Yeah. So uh, we should be encouraging people to, I mean, it's almost like starting a little Ocean, Ocean's Eleven team, mm. right? Like picking specialists, yeah. people who can, you know, pick safes and, and crawl through tight spaces or 
mastermind a plan and you have those little people. So you can do that internally. Right. Uh, or like you've done, it sounds like with the Almanac idea, that's you kind of put together your little team of specialists. Is that the future? Well, I think it's the present. That if we look at which brands do you care about, which products you're paying attention to, what, you know, who exactly at Netflix makes Extraordinary Attorney Wu, right? Well, actually, nobody at Netflix made that show because there's a federation. There isn't an industrial entity. And this idea of federation says, let's come up with the code words and the processes and the trust relationships we need to do our work. How can we scale that horizontally and vertically where we understand that the atomic element of it that is uh, unsplittable is we need to give human beings a chance to be significant. Let's get a little bit more personal. Um, I know that, well, I assume that a lot of people come to you for advice. Uh, I, I know that you're really generous with your advice just because I can speak from experience. You're very generous with me. I, so I assume you're generous with everyone. Um, but how many of these companies or brands that we might recognize by name have do you have your have do you have your fingers in the soup a little bit like can you talk about because i know that you'll come up with a brilliant idea and you'll say i i don't want to invent another software company. i don't want to invent you know salesforce you know but you, you know you should go do that or how many of these companies do you think are out there that you still kind of have well i don't consult right. i've never Charge you a penny. I've never charged anybody a penny. For right, that's advice. what I'm saying. The generosity. Well, but I just need to say that to the people out there who want to understand what I'm doing here. I am yeah. really fortunate. I was one of the first internet entrepreneurs, and ever since then, everything I do, I think of as an art project. Because I'm not saying how do I maximize shareholder value. I'm saying how do I make a difference? How do I make a contribution? Is this interesting? Do I get to interact with people who get the joke? Right. And is that where your ROI is then? Yeah. I mean, I'm measuring yeah. impact, reputation, and trust. Who's going to give me the benefit of the doubt? Yeah. So we're sort of on the same page then with that. That's why I do this. I mean, it's it's hard to calculate the return yeah. of being able to come out here and spend some time with you. I mean, it's to me, it's invaluable. But yeah, Well, we're... likewise. It's always good to see you. So... It turns out that doing it this way has enabled me to also make a living, but that's not the point. Are there a whole bunch of companies that I get to talk to? Yeah, but I, that's not what, I mean, I don't have a list for you because I'm not keeping track of that. It makes me really happy that entire industries exist because I went sort of first. I don't need any credit. I don't need any royalties. That's what you're trying for. Right? Who's going to steal this idea? I'm not checking the index to see if my name's in it. I just want to see if I had any relevance to people. Um, what I do know is that CEOs and people who are near CEOs hire me to do speaking gigs. And what I hear is, would you please explain to the people who work here that you and I are in agreement? Because they're not, they don't believe me. Okay. <laughs> right? And the reason we don't believe the boss is we've been ripped off so many times before. Yeah. That part of modern North American industrialism has been... How do we pretend we are 
the kind of place where you can be significant, but then get people to do what we want. And I'm saying there's more transparency than ever before. It's hard to pretend. Uh, talk to me about what is the Amazon turnover problem? So internal memos at Amazon that were published uh, a couple years ago, less than a couple years ago, show that in some cities, they are fearful they are going to run out of human beings who have not worked at Amazon yet, who don't want to work at Amazon. <laughs> and I might get this stat wrong, but they said that uh, a third of their profit disappeared as a result, with a third billions of dollars in profit disappeared as a result of turnover. Because it costs a lot of money to hire people, it costs a lot of money to train people, and then when they leave, it's very disruptive. That the mindset of Amazon, which made it so cheap and easy to get so many things, which was described as a customer-first mindset, someone suffered along the way. And the person who suffered along the way was the fulfillment center worker, was the person who's turning the dials as fast as they can. Yeah. And I think what is occurring to them is that the reason for the turnover is you can't get any more blood from that stone. And if you don't believe, if you're just there as a cog, you're going to burn out really fast. Yeah. If you have this feeling that what you are doing is significant because you have agency, because you have the ability to make choices, human beings are capable of extraordinary output. But they got confused about the difference between the two. And I think that we're seeing that in uh, tech sites unionizing. We're seeing that in turnover. We're seeing that in people who say, look, I got some skills. And you're not treating me well, so I'm leaving. Yeah. Well, now it makes sense why they're implementing all those robotics. Like they're just replacing the humans. It's not because, uh, well, it's because they have a turnover problem. <laughs> yeah, they have, a, they have a human problem or they're not treating their humans very well. Yeah, I mean, I think they're confused about management. Um, and I don't need to just pick on Amazon. Lots of organizations have pivot men, as Al Capone's former tax attorney named them. A pivot man is somebody who has a boss and who has employees. And their job is to be in between the two. And Al, I think his name was Seth Seidel. Seth wrote this book, which I have a copy of, that is memos you could hand out to your pivot men to get them to be more compliant in between. Because their job is to do what the boss says to get the people who work for them to, to just process all that. <clears throat> well, computers and the internet make it easier to live without pivot men because you have a flatter organization because news can go horizontally. But we still have the whole mindset problem, which is someone who doesn't actually understand what needs to get done issues an edict to the soft tissue in the middle who figures out the best way they could get it done. And this is, you know, the TPS reports and all the stuff from office space. Yeah. It's the idea that you've got people on the front lines who are doing things you don't want them to do to make a metric happen because the metric was easy to measure. So an example is lots of tech support because customer support folks. If you call and ask a hard question, you will get disconnected. Right. And the reason you will get disconnected is because they're getting measured on how fast can they answer a question. So if they answer easy questions, their scores go up. And if they take on hard questions, their scores go down. So what the edict from the top management did is that the pivot man said to people, we're measuring this easy metric. And people listen because you're measuring it. Yeah. Uh, let's go back to um, a company in trouble 
we talked about Twitter. Like, so, so what should the CEO of Twitter be doing instead of what he's doing right now? What I kind of understand it, right? It's like, it's a house on fire, it seems, right? And so you just want to put out fires at any cost, even if, you know, you're throwing the, everyone out with, with whatever. What, what should he be doing um, in, this, in this panic moment where he's just cleaning house and, you know, stripping everything away and, you know, back, what looks like back to basics or school of hard knocks or whatever you want to call it? Um, I, I, I'm loath to give any particular billionaire advice because I'm not a billionaire and I don't know what it means to be a megalomaniac who has unlimited Yeah, assets. well, this applies to any company. So let me just broaden it out a little. Yeah, this is any company. The key questions are, who's it for and what's it for? This thing we built. Who are we seeking to serve? What change are we seeking to make? And the asset of just about any organization is not what do we own that we can measure with the yardstick. It's who is giving us the benefit of the doubt. Who do we have permission to talk to? These are the assets of the future. These, not the asset of a Carnegie-owned coal plant. This is something different. Well, when you start with a company that already exists, whether you bought it for too high a price or you already own it, it has a who's it for and it has a what's it for. Yeah. And it has a bunch of assets. Well, the assets that a company like Twitter had were trust, an attention from a slice of the population that had resources and influence. That's what you're burning down. Why would you do that? If you owned a company that made shoes and your employees were stealing hundreds of shoes every single day, you wouldn't keep them. You'd say, no, you're not allowed to steal shoes. Mm -hmm. The second thing is that when you build whatever technology you build, five years later, 10 years later, 20 years later, that technology isn't important anymore. So you built something when it was hard to do. It got you some assets. And now you have obsolete technology. The answer is not to burn your assets to preserve the obsolete technology. Right. The answer is to say, what do these assets need and want? How do I offer them something with new technology? So if I look at Microsoft, which is sort of the opposite in so many of the examples I give in the book, where they don't measure how many lines of code you write. They don't pay attention to false measures of productivity, and they're trying to build an institution for the future. They're saying, you know what? Google is built on a 15, 20-year-old patent. What's going to be next? And ChatGPT is wrong a lot. It's not the answer, but it's clearly a step toward whatever the answer is. That LinkedIn is flexible and agile in the way it seeks to become LinkedIn 2.0 compared to an institution that says, no, we, this is the way we do things here. How do we make our code a little bit more efficient? And so I think what any institution can do, even if you've only got 20 employees, is you can say, who trusts us? What are their problems? How do I take the momentum I already have and build something new using the hard thing I already own, my assets, and not try to protect my middle managers or my tech stack, because those are cheap. Get rid of those as soon as you can and replace them with the next one. I got you. I was, as you were describing that, I was also thinking about how that could apply to 
professional sports teams, mm -hmm. right? You know, getting rid of players or bringing in new players. Right. Or and, and, you know, professional sports teams have no choice but to do it. They've got, they even named the injured reserve list, mm -hmm. right? They have a draft every year. But in my case, in your case, you know, I, I came up in the book business, but when DVDs showed up, I was one of the first person in, people in DVDs. I had an interesting run there, and then DVDs went away. I didn't go away, right? It was like, oh, here's Prodigy and CompuServe and AOL. It's like books, but there's no paper. Let's go. And so you can take your people stack, you can take your mission, the change you seek to make, and move it to a new tech stack. When we think about the mistakes of, you know, the NFL's inevitable fading away, well, they're burning so many things that they have in place to protect the technology of helmet crashes. Why do that? Why not just say, but there's all these other things we can do with our people stack, with our trust stack. How do we engage people's dreams to take them where they want to go and not be in the business of protecting the, the Riedel Helmet Company? Yeah. You know, this series is called Behind the Brand. We talk about branding a lot. Um, so how do, how do these decisions of leadership impact the brand? Um, I mean, it starts to erode your brand or you lose trust. You know, it takes a long time to yeah. earn trust. You can lose it overnight. Yeah, you and I have talked about my definition of brand a lot. But to catch people up, brand is not logo. Brand is a souvenir of the change you make in the world. It is a souvenir of the expectations that people have for you. So if I get an email that says Patagonia has a new product, I have a hunch as to what it's gonna be like. If there was a press release that says Nike's opening a new line of hotels, we have a guess because Nike has a brand. Right. Whereas if you got a note that says Hyatt is coming out with a line of sneakers, we'd have no clue what Hyatt sneakers would be like because Hyatt doesn't have a brand. They just own a bunch of hotels. Yeah, so I'm thinking about like the implication of these bad leadership decisions on brand. Uh, can we recover from this? Like, uh, how do how do we begin to repair? Uh, another recent example, I think maybe I'll have you weigh in on. Um, do you follow Mr. Beast at all? I yes. I mean, I don't watch Mr. Beast, but I read about the new video he just did. Yeah. So Mr. Beast had this video where he helped, I think, um, a thousand people. Yeah. Uh, recover from an illness, and there was a lot of people weighing in one way or the other. Um, what's your take on that? So if you're in the provocative content business, you can't do that and not make provocative content. Right. And so if, if you want your brand to stand for provocative content, don't be surprised that provocative content is going to make your brand even more provocative. Right. Evoke emotions. Yeah. So... I mean, having worked with the founder of Aravind years ago and seeing how many millions of people the Aravind Eye Hospital has helped with blindness, I have particular points of view about this, but I also understand ableism and how it can be hurtful to people. So there were lots of ways you could make a video about this work on cataract surgery without being provocative. But Mr. Beast is supposed to be provocative. That's the brand. He's on brand. Then. Yeah. Right? So... Yeah. The problem with that is that sooner or later you end up with a Netflix special that burns down part of what you want to stand for because provocative by itself is eventually a dead end because brands have to also be about trust and connection. And if sooner or later, if 
you punch enough people in the face, you can't have trust and connection. Yeah. I'm not sure that that was Mr. Beast's intention here. But in general, what I think we learn is as your brand gets bigger, you're trying to reach more people. That's the definition of bigger. And those people are going to demand stuff that's more average. Another word for that is mediocre, because that's the definition of more people. So you have to decide, are you going to go deeper or are you going to go wider? What it means to go deeper is to double down on the people who got you here and giving them precisely why they give you their attention. Whatever it is you sell, why do they trust you? Going wider, like Zappos is trying to do, says lots of people have feet. Let's sell shoes to everybody. Which means you have to stop investing in the quirkiness that made the people who liked you in the old days. go. So brands evolve the same way politicians do and humans do as they seek to engage with people. So I think the big decision that someone who's thinking about their brand has to make is, do I want the same or fewer people to trust me more? Or do I want more people to trust me a little? And if I'm going to do that, I better be prepared to make it dumber. Because that's what it means to reach more people. Yeah. More convenient, simpler, easier to get your hands on. Yeah, I, I, you made me think of sort of the luxury good category when you're talking about that. It seems like they have doubled down. They've gone deeper and more narrow. And that has been tremendously profitable for them. While others have gone wide, um, they've you know doubled down on their luxuriousness. Uh, I, I even like this is post COVID and there's still lines out the door and they're requiring people to wait in line and come in one at a time. Did you hear about this? I think I, I can't remember where I read it, but like they found out that making people wait, uh, creating the scarcity, uh, there's a, they buy more, right? Because sure. they have to wait and then they come into the store and then like, yeah. you know, they get this personal attention. They end up buying maybe one and a half times more than what, if you just let them go like cattle into the store and you know, right. look, look at because the waiting is part of the product. Yeah. You know, it's so like you can't buy a Rolex in the United States now because uh, the sales clerks buy them before the store opens and sell them for 10x on eBay. <laughs> and it wouldn't take Rolex very long to solve, solve that problem, but the scarcity is actually in their interest. Yeah. On the other hand, if you want to plaster your brand on everything and anything, if you want to become more controversial by running ads that offend people, you can go horizontal, but your brand isn't going to last for the 100, 200 years that Hermes and others have lasted. So a luxury good is a very specific thing. The one wild card, which is always fascinating, is the way Apple has become a luxury good, but also figured out how to do it at scale. And I think the reason for that is it's a network effect that your device from Apple connects to other people's devices. And so that gives it utility as it scales. But in general, the most resilient brands are brands that are very specific about who they're for and are eager to say to people, sorry, it's not for you. If you're not ready to say, sorry, it's not for you, you don't have much of a brand. Talk about uh, Kokoro. If anyone can pronounce it, it's you, Mr. I speak fluent Japanese. Did I get it right? Yeah. Kokoro. Kokoro. The heart. Yes. So in Purple Cow, I, I wrote about uh, a Japanese word that means slightly pejoratively somebody who is obsessed with something, otaku. Uh, 
And otaku is this idea that you're nerdy and you know everything there is to know about this thing. And it turns out that that's a great place to build a brand. And kokoro is this hard-to-translate idea of humanity. And if we look at the symbol for it, it's heart. Now, we know our heart beats, but it's not our brain. It's, but we have this conception that we can bring something to work that a machine can't bring. That we can, once seen, grow into someone we wish to become. And there are a lot of people who have been indoctrinated by industrialism to say, but you got to leave your real self home. They've been indoctrinated to say, well, I'm just doing my job. And the expression, I'm just doing my job, so undermines our humanity that you're spending 40, 50, 60 hours a week for 40 years not being a human. Why is that okay? Why don't we, you know, the, the back cover of my book says, honey is not the point of a hive. Honey is the byproduct of a healthy hive. If your goal is to maximize honey output, you're going to have colony collapse. You're going to end up with extinction. Whereas if you say, one way to measure whether I have a healthy hive is whether it is leaving honey behind, you will do other things. You won't become attached to measuring the honey. You will instead find more difficult metrics that enable kokoro, that will enable things to be alive. I mean, we were just sitting back, you know, <laughs> chopping it up, reminiscing about the good old days and all that, <laughs> you know, tracking my roots, where I came from and where I'm going. But like I say, man, always said it, it's not about the destination, it's all about the journey. Ain't nothing changed but the weather. The dangling carrot and hang from the rear view. Uh-huh. Your dreams in the past ain't nowhere near you. Backseat drivers got nothing but two cents. Shotgun riders, too biased, they all liars. I should get an A forever, I'm too tired. But I'm never giving up, that's why I'm kinda admired. Role model, like it or not, I gotta play it. Sugarcoat the rhyme sometimes, but still say it. Said I was quitting at 40, is just a fib. I'm still a kid that's wiping the food off of my bib. You ever wanted something so bad that you could taste it? Cried over every opportunity wasted good and bad news which one you want first either way you pick the bad still gonna hurt you the worst i never got the basket and the fruits of the labor and i never got the cash from that